0: Hi, this is Kevin Murphy, and welcome to Ethics Lab Essentials, offering the foundational episodes CME-accredited that explore the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics.
1: The determination of death is an issue mostly because death is a difficult thing to face.
2: I think it's fantastic that this topic is being covered. It brings up some very profound questions over how do we determine death in a greater sense, as well as what it means to be a human being.
0: Becca Grimmels, it's great to have you as a lead contributor on this episode devoted to brain death. We really enjoyed your last episode on organ donation. Uh, and in this episode, what stood out for you in the conversation with our guests on this issue? One thing that really stood out to me was the practical advice that
3: our guests provide for clinicians, ethics committee members, even family members of patients who are dealing with a patient who's brain dead or could be brain dead. It's a topic that doesn't come up as often as others, whether in clinical care or in an ethics committee, but it's one that's so complex and fraught with emotions that these cases tend to be ones that stick with you for a long time.
1: I'm Alex Capron. I teach in the law school, in the medical school at the University of Southern California. I was the executive director of the President's Commission for the Study of Ethical Problems in Medicine and Biomedical and Behavioral Research, which was established by an act of Congress in 1978. And among a large number of topics in our mandate, the commission was instructed To address the issue of determining death.
2: Hi, my name is Michael Rubin. I'm a neurointensivist and clinical ethicist in the Department of Neurology and Neurotherapeutics in the uh, Peter O'Donnell Jr. Brain Institute of UT Southwestern Medical Center. I work primarily as a clinical ICU physician specializing in patients with neurologic disorders. And I also chair our hospital's ethics committee. How do you approach the idea of brain death in your work?
3: Just real briefly, why don't we start with you, Dr. Rubin?
2: You know, it's it's probably the, the most nerve-wracking component of becoming a neurointensivist, having to approach a family that you're just meeting and just developing a relationship with, and to have a conversation with them where you're trying to explain why, despite the appearance of a breathing person on a machine with a heart that seems to have function, why that person is no longer alive, is, is a heavy measure. And you can have all of the knowledge and understanding scientifically, but to explain that to a family that may not have that level of sophistication requires a lot of subtlety and patience and understanding. If
3: you were describing brain death to someone who who hadn't heard of the concept before and was kind of new to it, how would you describe it? I mean, what is it in a nutshell? And let's start with you, Professor Capron.
1: Well, the first thing I would say, and this applies to our whole discussion, is I wouldn't call it brain death. That term has, has caused a great deal of confusion. And it's easy to see why, because when we speak of death, we're talking about an organism It has died, and the organism is made up of organs and the systems through which they work. And brain death is not the death of the brain. It is rather a shorthand phrase because the longer way of saying it, which is a neurological determination of death or some comparable phrase, is cumbersome. So we use this shorthand. But what it means is it's the the death of the human being determined by looking at the brain and its function, or rather its lack of function, rather than looking as throughout human history we have usually looked, which is is there respiration and circulation? And since respiration and circulation continue In some bodies, because of artificial support—not only the respirator, but sometimes vasopressor drugs or other support to the individual—we can't use those means, breathing and and heartbeat, to determine that the person is still alive. So it's like looking into a room to see what's in the room, but looking in through a different window than we have traditionally looked, and that in most cases, we continue to look. I mean, most patients are determined to have died based upon the traditional signs of breathing and heartbeat.
3: So that's a, that's a really interesting point there that it,
1: brain death isn't the death of the brain, it's the death of the person? Well, the death, well, be careful about the, using the word person. It, it's the death of the body. So one of the arguments that arose early on was do we need a total lack of function in the brain, or should we, as some authorities like Robert Veitch and, and others argued, would it be enough that there is a death of the person in the sense of the death, the permanent lack of function in the higher centers of the brain, permanently unconsciousness, unresponsive to interactions, verbal interactions, and so forth but still perhaps with an ability to breathe. And so with that, the term person is a something that's particular to being a human being with, with the many abilities that we think of as with a human being. And that view was not accepted. It's really, it's really the death of the body, which would also, of course, mean the death of the person, but the phrase death of a person could be taken to mean the death of the particularly human characteristics, the personality, the memories, and so forth of an individual. And we mean more than that. We mean something that is more comparable to the death of, of any animal, any mammal.
2: I think we could all agree that the, the parts of personality, uh, identity, experience, knowledge. These are the things that we identify with an individual that defines the individual. However, once we start splicing certain particular neurologic functions, then we are delving into areas of neurologic injury that may be potentially reversible. And what's key to the definition of death is its irreversibility. So a significant part why we ask for loss of all physiologic uh, function of the the brain is we want to say that so much of it has been lost that we've had such a catastrophic injury that we can say with certainty this function will not return.
1: And I fully agree with with that as a very important characteristic of what we're talking about. One of the arguments about the use of the total functions of the brain rather than just the higher functions was, and Dr. Rubin can can tell me if this has changed, but at the time, the data on irreversibility, the, the prognosis of irreversibility, was very and remains very strong when one is talking about the criteria and tests that are used to determine neurological death. And we know through all the data, when there has been a determination of death that has been made reliably, we do not have examples of such people, quote, waking up and so forth. Where that does occur sometimes after many years of a person who has been supported in an unconscious state, comatose state, with persistent vegetative function. Just to
3: summarize and make sure that we're all on the same page, someone who's been declared dead by
1: neurological criteria would be, for all intents and purposes, dead, right? Yes, everything But the phrase for all intents and purposes. I mean, if that suggests, well, they're not quite, but for all intents and purposes, that'll do. That's where the confusion comes in. They're dead. And indeed, if you look again at uh, our history of making errors about the determination of death, those errors occur with surprising frequency when people are determined based upon an apparent permanent loss of circulatory and respiratory functions in an action and victim and so forth. I mean, the annals of medicine, the annals of, annals of warfare are full of determinations. Oh, this person's dead. You know, get out the body bag, put them in the body bag and whoops, they're moving. Open it up. Give them, give them medical attention that's not what happens with determinations of death based on neurological criteria and you know partly that's the setting in which it happens and the great care that is expended in doing that and that person is is dead and we don't have to say for all intents and purposes or they're they're dead period professor
3: capron human beings have looked at heart rate and respiratory rate to assess death for generations I'm curious to know what prompted physicians to look for another way to determine if a patient is dead.
1: One of the concerns that people have about the determination of death using brain measures is whether this was something that was just developed as a means of having organs for donation. And I think there there are two important things to keep in mind about that history, The first is that the initial concerns arose at a time when physicians were trying to figure out what to do with patients who had been placed on respirators and were, uh, where an attempt was being made to save their life, and then they were not getting the response um, in terms of the restoration of their consciousness. And so the real concern then was, well, can we stop treatment? And at the time, in the 1960s, the view still was that neither ethically nor legally was this permissible. And that was the initial concern with saying, well, if these patients have reached a state that is the same as a patient whose heart has stopped then we should be able to say that we can remove the life support from those patients. And it happened that the Harvard committee's report came out right at the time that the first heart transplant had been done. And so the idea, well, this is mostly going to be very important for heart transplants and then secondarily as a means of getting donation of other organs when you Can avoid the use of a living donor. Dr. Rubin, as a physician,
3: what are you looking for when you're assessing patients to see if they meet neurological criteria for death?
2: The first step that doesn't get the attention that it deserves is that you have to have some catastrophic injury that has a possibility of leading to brain death or death by neurologic criteria. If someone comes in, to the hospital without any neurologic function, but you can not explain why you ought not to try to diagnose that person as as not being alive anymore, because this is something that requires absolute certainty in the diagnosis. Uh, with many areas of medicine, we have a hypothesis, we're testing it, we're studying labs, but We accept a certain amount of error, and if we get it wrong, then we'll we'll look for something else in the following handful of days. But with declaring someone dead, that diagnosis may lead to the discontinuation of organ support, and you may not have a chance to uh, look for other hypotheses. So you really got to get it right. You have to make sure that they're coming in with something that could possibly lead to them being brain dead. That usually involves some kind of brain imaging to show the insults. You need to consider what we call confounders. So medications, electrolyte disturbances, things that would mask normal neurologic function such that remaining function could be artificially suppressed and potentially reversible. And uh, this is exactly why the Academy of Neurology criteria are so precise. And it sometimes causes frustration amongst families that were going to all this work to, to get the details and cross the T's and dot the I's. But you got to get it right. You have to consider the confounders. And then after that's done and before you start examining the patient. I always pause to make sure, are we sure the family knows what we're doing here? You never want the first conversation with the family to be informing them that the patient is no longer alive. I would always highly suggest that you already have a relationship. They understand what the focus of the care in the moment is. And then when it comes to the clinical exam, we do a very detailed neurologic exam, which essentially looks at everything that we can test at the bedside. That includes ability to wake up, cranial nerve function, motor function. And typically this is followed by what we call an apnea test, where we test the brainstem's ability to generate a drive for respiration. So when the when the carbon dioxide levels reach a certain point, it should stimulate the brainstem to initiate a breath. This is often the last function that the brain loses as it is progressing towards of, of dysfunction. And so that's an essential um, corroborating part of the exam. There are situations where we can't account for all the confounders or we cannot perform an apnea test. And then we learn to use ancillary tests, but those should always be used only when the primary testing cannot be performed. And then once the testing is corroborated, depending on if it's an adult or a child and which guidelines are being used, you may need to corroborate the diagnosis. And then it's a uh, discussion with the family of, of what you found. It sounds
3: like all of these different clinical tests that you're doing are looking for different signs and indications that the brain is functioning. And you're, you're testing to see if the brain responds how it normally would. would that, is that what I'm hearing?
2: You're looking for the absence of response. And in many ways, when you're teaching brain death testing to medical students and residents, it almost comes across as anticlimactic because you're at the bedside, you're doing these detailed exams, and nothing happens, right? That's, that's what, what it should be if, if their brain isn't functioning. And there's been some effort looking at bringing families into the exam process to see if that would assist with their understanding of the diagnosis. And many families will ask to watch, and they, for some families it helps, and others it just causes them to not feel any more reassured, because again, if if they've met neurologic criteria, their response will be of the lack of a response.
1: Professor Capron, do you have anything to, to add on that? It, always with a, a, a scientific proposition, what you're really trying to do is negate the proposition. And here the proposition would be, this unresponsive person is dead. And so if you got any response by doing the tests that Dr. Rubin just described, you would negate that proposition. And so the question is, are the tests and the criteria of which they're looking at complete enough, and one of the concerns that has been raised is, well, there, there are some, some things are still going on in the body, as they are in the body of a person determined to be dead for the absence of circulation and respiration. Some cells are still metabolizing. Well, that's all right, because those are just cells. That's not a whole system. But well, what about the neuroendocrine system? Some of that may still be functioning because it isn't destroyed in the same way through the intracranial pressure as quickly as other parts of the brain. But if it can't function to continue the life of the individual, then it too is in effect negated. Looking at that particular function, though, isn't part of what the usual determination of death set of tests involves. They're, they're looking, as, as Dr. Rubin said, at responses to stimuli and at whether the signal is given to the lungs to, to function. And when that signal is absent and the lungs aren't functioning on their own, then you have the confirmation that the person is dead. One question I often get from physicians
3: is what goes into determining the actual time of death? Is it when the heart stops? Is it when the physician finishes the exam? How do you figure out when you actually declare death? What is that last time?
2: Depending on how you're completing the neurologic exam, uh, most commonly it's the time of the arterial blood gas from the apnea test, the final confirmatory test. If you're unable to use the apnea test, sometimes it's when the report from the ancillary test is complete. The practice is, after you declare someone and the patient has been evaluated otherwise for other possible care paths, we we do record the point of a systole. However, that's not the actual time of death as we were using neurologic criteria for the determination.
1: And so so just to to finish up that thought, there are a number of reasons why a patient who is supported might be extubated. One would be that the patient, by their advance directive or the patient through the surrogate decision maker, does not want further treatment. And that would be a patient who isn't dead. But another is that the patient has died. And since it's not appropriate to ventilate a corpse, you withdraw. But the determination of death is made before the withdrawal. It is the predicate which allows the withdrawal, not based on a patient choice, but on a patient death. And so it's important that it's not after the extubation that we date the moment, time, the moment of death. It's before. So if that
3: body's being maintained after death has been determined, and and they're remaining on some type of, of ventilatory or other support for a while, that is that's the body that's being maintained at that point. That's not it's not the living, not the living being, it's not the living. Yeah, okay. And your your analogy there to somebody who dies of cardio cardiac respiratory death is declared in that manner, I think, is really poignant, and it's one that I've I've I refer back to often when helping walk clinicians through this. If they're not very familiar with it or is experienced with it, is, you know, we wouldn't necessarily ask permission to take the tube out in that case. And we wouldn't necessarily delay it in a case like that. And yet we find ourselves, for a whole host of reasons, I think, somewhat a little hesitant, or at least some clinicians do, in, in proceeding in the same manner uh, when death is declared by neurological
1: criteria. I mean, the, the common example of what you're speaking of would be a CPR team laboring over the victim of an arrest and then getting to the point under their the protocol they're using of realizing that they're not going to get a reversal and that they are therefore stepping back and ceasing their efforts. And again, they don't ask the family's permission for that. They have reached the point where, as Dr. Rubin said, you have a permanent loss of those functions and they've made their best effort to save the person's life and it was unavailing so they declare death. With the patient who is ventilated, since there is an intervention which is keeping a function continuing, there's a ventilation so that there's air coming in and with that the heart is beating and the, the blood is circulating then you ha- have to say, well, why are we stopping this now? And it could be the patient's choice, the family's choice, or it could be that the patient has died. What are
3: some of the common ethical concerns that arise when declaring death by neurological criteria? Maybe Dr. Rubin, let's start with you.
2: Well, I I think the first thing that comes up is confusion in nomenclature. We as healthcare providers have trouble putting neurologic criteria in, in place in the clinical scenario, just as you described the question about what's the appropriate time to determine death. Some providers may even say, well, okay, so now their heart stops from now, they're really dead. And I think that's the biggest challenge is that there's certain language we use from one healthcare provider to the other because we understand. Like, for example, we'll say we're going to withdraw on that patient, but you would obviously never use that word with a family member because you never withdraw care. You you may withdraw life support in a living person. And as someone who's declared dead by neurologic criteria, you're withdrawing organ support. And so, it's very important, and I think a key element of the work of an ethics committee to help build that culture, that understanding that what you're doing is something very different. And it's key that we get it right, because to many families, they're they're not going to be able to intuitively separate a ventilated, supported, comatose patient with some chance of recovery. From someone who's met neurologic criteria. To them, they both look like a person who is sleeping on a machine. So if we can't have our own understanding as medical professionals, it's not fair to expect that our patients are going to understand those same situations.
1: I would add to that a couple of examples where I think physicians feel uh, an ethical Tug in their relationship with the family. The two I have in mind are a family that doesn't accept, hasn't come to accept that the, their loved one is is dead, and who therefore is, is insisting that they want to delay the removal of the support. And sometimes, even in places outside New Jersey and New York which each have legal provisions which suggests that that is either a, a binding choice that is to say in New Jersey if the family won't accept the neurological determination they don't have to or in New York that there is a reasonable accommodation but in many places i think there there is a thought let's just give them a little more time there may be a moment when you know, the word has gone out to a relative who isn't in the room right then. They're they're determining death. It's, John may be gone, and they say, "Wait, you know, Grandpa is, is will be here soon, and he wants to see his grandson one last time." And they mean they want that appearance of life when Grandpa gets there. And there's often a thought that that should be accommodated if possible for a brief period of time to allow that transition to more closely resemble the passing of someone in a way that's familiar to people. The other one, of course, is a more, a more difficult issue is what if a family not accepting this notion for the reasons Dr. Rubin mentioned that looks like a, a sleeping person in the bed says, we don't want you to conduct any of those tests and i'd be interested to know dr rubin what you're at southwestern what you do in the face of that B- because obviously without the information from the tests you are not fully able to make a determination
2: right well fortunately i can say that's an extremely very rare, rare yes. <laughs> you know and and i think always flipping back to a cardiopulmonary uh, determination is a great way to find assurance and how you're approaching the situation. So when, when people ask, I counsel them, well, if someone said, I don't want you to listen to their heart and their lungs to tell me if my loved one is no longer alive, that would seem almost bizarre request, because how can you come up with a care path if you don't know the current state of the patient's well-being? If you don't know whether they're wheezing or not, how are you going to treat asthma? It's it's an essential part to it. So if someone is refusing you to to do a brain death determination, they're essentially refusing your care overall. You can't you can't appropriately manage someone that you don't understand whether they're living or not. You don't know what legal category they're in or what treatments are appropriate or what other eligibility that they might have so usually you don't get in resistance for a bedside exam the question always comes up in these rare cases is the apnea test very much because it involves some measure of risk and it's the last test depending on the situation you can try to control that risk and still perform the test when when that's done i Things usually don't work out well because you're setting yourself up contrary to the family's wishes and it almost looks underhanded. An alternative approach is to not do an apnea test, but to do an ancillary test that doesn't require specific consent. But then again, likewise, you're setting yourself up in opposition to the family. And if they're already disagreeing over what you're doing for their loved one, they still may be highly resistant to your diagnosis. So I think the the, the point that you have to get to is to convince them why it's necessary and why it must be done and that anything you may have to offer moving forward simply can't be provided until that step has been taken. What advice would you give an ethics committee when they're responding to that kind
3: of refusal? from a family member or a surrogate?
2: I think the committee should first look at uh, the nature of the relationship between the family and the person determining brain death. If it's clear that they are simply not getting along and there's no trust, it might be time to have a second opinion, have one of their colleagues come in who can start fresh, who can build up a trusting relationship, because in the end, it comes down to trust. Right. If if you believe inherently in your heart that no pun intended that if if someone is only dead if they're not breathing and their heart's not beating, you have to believe you have to trust the person who is telling you about this reality that is death by neurologic criteria, and you're not going to trust someone that you have a soured relationship with. So it may be that someone else needs to come in who's. Likewise, qualified to make a determination to offer that second opinion, to repeat the testing, and to establish trust with the family. I think the other thing an ethics committee can do is try to find what the source of the family's opposition is. It's a very different situation if someone has a religious objection based on their theological norms versus someone who has a certain faith tradition and who believes their their faith is telling them that brain death neurologic determination isn't equivalent. And so it's essential to understand their motivation, their level of coping. Really the way to address it by an ethics committee is helping them cope and work through that process and at least begin to come to some acceptance of the catastrophic neurologic injury that began this whole uh, this whole path. Professor Capron, any kind of
1: summary of the discussion or closing statement? The determination of death is an issue mostly because death is a difficult thing to face. In cases where death is determined through an absence of brain function, We are typically dealing with situations that are sudden and often shocking for the relatives and for others caring for the patient. There is a lot of settled agreement about the determination of death among neurologists and intensivists, but nevertheless, the reality of the body makes it a difficult thing for people to accept i think the role of the ethics committee should be a supportive one and an educational one supportive of a process in which families and physicians and nurses are helped to get past the difficulty of accepting a very sad outcome and one which in some ways seems contradicted by the appearance of the patient and Educational in the sense that with proper education and training, some of the things which just make that first problem worse, the problem of getting to a point of acceptance, can be avoided by using the right terminology and the right approach in helping families to come to accept and understand the reality of death.
2: I think it's fantastic that this topic is being covered, not only for the intricacies of the of death by neurologic criteria, but the importance of thinking about these issues in the greater context of what is a cardiopulmonary determination of death. Uh, The more sophisticated our technology is getting, the more we can replace certain organ systems. So clearly, We can't depend on traditional criteria, and it's foreseeable that there could be a day that the only part of a human being that is their primary organic functioning system is the brain, and the rest can be replaced by technology. We can replace your renal function. We can replace your your heart function. We can replace your lung function. So it brings up some very profound questions over how do we determine death in a greater sense, as well as what it means to be a human being.
3: Professor Capron, Dr. Rubin, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Ethics Lab.
0: Ethics Lab Essentials highlights guests, lead contributors, and topics that are foundational for listeners like Healthcare Ethics Committee members, healthcare professionals, and members of the public. To obtain CME education credit, please go to our website at missiononline.net and click on the Ethics Lab Essentials icon. Educational credit can be obtained by completing an online pretest, post test, and evaluation, along with listening to the episode facilitation guides and other helpful links to each topic are also available at the episode webpage. Appreciation to our guests and listeners on this episode of the Ethics Lab Essentials podcast. Thanks, everyone.